This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 47, Crisis and Collapse of the Principate. time on the History of the World podcast, we watched how the emperors of the Roman Empire seemed to diminish in quality and how the army were gaining more power and influence at the expense of the power of the Senate and the Praetorian Guard who were the imperial military council within the city of Rome itself. The stability that allowed an emperor such as Hadrian the ability to go on an extended tour vacation of the Roman Empire was no longer there a hundred years later. It now seemed that emperors were being hand-picked by the most influential statesmen and stateswomen of the Roman Empire, and normally because they wanted the power for themselves and had to do it in the name of another, which was great until someone wanted to muscle in and kill the emperor. The consequences of regicide often depended on the political repercussions. So if you killed the emperor, you would only get executed if it suited the current political landscape of the empire. So much for common law. There was a degree of stability when Septimius Severus was emperor, but when he died, his son Caracalla assumed responsibility and was somewhat irresponsible in terms of his bloodthirsty massacres, which would have created a lot of bad feeling in and around the Roman Empire, quite likely for one or two generations to come. When Caracalla was assassinated, it was the army who were the most disappointed. Caracalla's successor, Macrinus, was pushed out as princeps, and a young man called Elagabalus was ushered in as a puppet ruler so that his grandmother, Julia Maessa, could regain control of the imperial throne for the Severan family. However, when it became apparent that Elagabalus was as far from being a model emperor as one could be, she switched her allegiance to his cousin, Alexianus. Elagabalus was murdered and Alexianus became the new emperor, Alexander Severus, at just 13 years old. So this was an incredible change in the nature of Roman politics. Even during the reign of Marcus Aurelius during the 160s, the empire was being ruled very responsibly and despite a great plague ravaging the empire and Germanic tribes crossing the Danube, Marcus Aurelius was apparently secure in his reign. It was after this period that things seemed to change significantly. We have to understand that in the early 160s, the great percentage of society would only be able to remember back as far as when Trajan was the emperor. So most Romans would have been able to take stability of the empire for granted. 30 years later, and the most recent generation 
would have seen new things such as plague, vulnerability of Roman borderlands and a despotic emperor in Commodus. This seems to have created a generation of restless statesmen looking for powerful movements that they could get behind. These statesmen could have been senators, members of the Praetorian Guard or legionaries and their commanders and the powerful movements would have been spearheaded by senior senators, dynastic family members or provincial governors. What the average Roman must have been hoping for is that Alexander Severus would be a successful emperor even if it meant that someone was acting as an effective regent while he was still in his minority. It can't have been in the general public's interest for there to be another assassination or usurpation. The Roman Empire worked better when it was united, but at this point it was such a vast territory containing so many different ethnic groups, cultures and religious sects that it was also going to be a challenge to keep the entire empire working towards a common cause. So at the beginning of Alexander's reign, a regency council of 16 senators were asked to take control of the major decisions of the empire. So this should have been a new beginning for Rome, but the reality was that it was more of the same. The Praetorian prefect Domitius Ulpianus was murdered by other members of the Praetorian Guard. Then Emperor Alexander Severus was married to the beautiful Orbiana, the daughter of the new Praetorian prefect called Saius Salustius. Saius Salustius would attempt to take the life of his new son-in-law, the Emperor Alexander Severus, but he was unsuccessful. Saius Salustius was executed and his daughter was divorced and sent into exile. In the meantime, a new power had emerged in the east. The Parthian Empire had been suffering from dynastic problems and a succession crisis, and the Sassans of Persis took control of the empire, signalling the end of the Parthian Empire and the beginning of the Sasanian Empire. The Sasanians were keen to establish dominance of the Middle East and pushed northwards into the Roman province of Mesopotamia. The Sasanians were being led by their great ruler, the new Persian king of kings, Shahanshah Ardashir I. He would exploit Roman military indiscipline, but also despite victories, counter-victories by the Romans would restore the status quo, so there were no real gains from either side in these conflicts. Ultimately, it would be in the year 235, that legionaries would murder the emperor at the young age of 26. Now, we can see that Alexander Severus lasted significantly longer than his two predecessors, and the comparative stability of the empire during the 220s is regarded as a high point of the 3rd century, and his victories over the Sasanians were celebrated in Rome. I have read that Alexander Severus was a good emperor. Personally, I think that his reign was no good and solved no problems. Roman stability is measured by the chaos going on either side of Alexander Severus's reign, plus it was during his minority. 
celebrating a military stalemate in the east would have horrified the great Trajan, the emperor from the beginning of the previous century. He was murdered by legionaries and this sparked what could only be described as military anarchy. Alexander Severus's reign did not improve the Roman Empire. The legionaries declared Maximinus Thrax as the new Roman Emperor. Three years later, they assassinated him. This became a sad trend of the Roman Empire during this subsequent period. Armies propping up emperors and then murdering them as per their desire. There were no consequences and neither the Praetorian Guard nor the Senate provided any kind of solution to this problem. The armies were calling the shots. Crisis. Tracking the emperors of Rome at this point is a difficult job as it is not always clear who was the emperor. Sometimes there would be three different factions putting forward three different men and each declaring them as the emperor. After the co-rulers, Pupienus and Balbinus, were tortured and murdered by the Praetorian Guard in 238, the new emperor was Gordian III, who was just 13 years old. Much like Alexander Severus, Gordian III remained the emperor for a longer period of time. His father and uncle were briefly instated as emperors during the reign of Maximus Thrax, which explains why he was the third Gordian. The Sasanian Empire was now being ruled by Ardashir I's son, Shapur I. Shapur would be pestering the Roman province of Mesopotamia once again, and Gordian III was now old enough to lead military campaigns against the Sasanians. Gordian would lead a Roman military victory against a Sasanian army at the Battle of Rezania in 243. The following year, Gordian would launch another campaign to try to push the Sasanians back to Ctesiphon. It is possible that Gordian III was killed during this campaign at the Battle of Misiki, and he would be succeeded by Philip the Arab so named because he was born in the Roman province of Arabia. Philip was a Praetorian prefect and quickly negotiated a peace with the Sasanian ruler Shapur. Some have speculated that Philip had a hand in the death of his predecessor Gordian. Philip the Arab would oversee the official 1000th birthday of Rome. It is the Romans' belief that their city was a thousand years old in 248 that enables historians to determine that the city's foundation must have been in 753 BCE. But of course we suspect that the story of the Roman kingdom and its foundation may be somewhat fabricated for the purpose of glorifying Roman history as the archaeological data suggests that a settlement in Rome is even older. However, Nobody in Rome in 248 would have had any reason at all to suspect any untruth 
And so three days and three nights of secular games took place with athletic competitions, chariot racing, theatrical shows and gladiatorial battles and very likely a great number of religious sacrifices. Coins were also minted to celebrate these millennial games depicting Philip's image. Despite these celebrations, Rome was heading towards more turmoil and we briefly touched upon this during episode 4 on the Sasanian Empire of Persia when we spoke of King Shapur I, otherwise known to history as Shapur the Great. Shapur would show great ruthlessness towards the Romans who were the traditional enemy of Persian empires and the Romans were a shadow of their former selves with so much internal instability. When Philip the Arab negotiated a peace treaty with the Sasanians back in 243, it would be financially advantageous to the Sasanians, but their King Shapur the Great wanted more. During the 250s, Shapur would make a number of penetrations into the Roman territory on the Roman eastern frontier, and the new Roman emperor at the time was named Valerian, and he would have had to restore order on this front to prevent Shapur and the Sasanians from collecting more free spoils. However, Valerian was prevented from consolidating his position because there would be similar issues on Rome's northern borders by the ever-troublesome Germans. This time we distinguish these Germanic tribes as the Goths, who will play an important role in European history. The Goths are thought to have come from an area further north than the Marcomanni were, possibly in the area of the modern country of Poland. It would be this distraction that would prevent Valerian from being able to devote his full attention to the Sasanian problem. The Goths had been causing big problems to the Romans leading into the 250s before scoring a major victory over the Romans in the modern country of Bulgaria at the Battle of Abritus in 251. One of the great contributory factors of foreign incursions into Roman territory during this period was another plague, which was killing a large number of Romans and depleting the Roman army as a consequence. This was a similar problem to those faced by Marcus Aurelius 80 years earlier and described in episode 45. Certainly the Sasanians were able to venture as far north as Antioch before Valerian would have the energy to push Shapur back east again. But the culmination of Sasanian aggression during this period would result in the Battle of Edessa in 260 and the Sasanians would score a resounding victory. The Roman Emperor Valerian was taken as a prisoner of war and held in captivity, never to return to the Roman Empire. Much of the Roman army was lost and this would send shockwaves throughout the Roman Empire. The Roman governor of Germania was a man called Postumus and he would move quickly to take control and declare himself as emperor. But on this occasion he would not march on Rome to take power but instead he created a break-off empire independent from Rome. 
he would establish his own political system, with a Praetorian Guard and Senate and elected consuls in a version of a Roman Empire centred in Gaul. We therefore call this independent state the Gallic Empire to distinguish it from the continuing Roman Empire based in Rome. Alongside Gaul and Germania were the provinces of Hispania and the provinces of Britannia, so this would be a sizeable portion of the entire Roman Empire. If Posthumus believed that he'd found a solution to the long-suffering crises that Rome had been suffering throughout the 3rd century, then he would soon discover that the same lack of regard and consequence that legionaries would have their emperors in Rome would be mirrored in Gaul. Emperors would be elected by the army and the outgoing emperor would be removed violently, so it would come as no surprise that the legionaries under Posthumus' rule eventually murdered him in 269 so that the Gallic Empire could be ruled by somebody else. Meanwhile, in the east and on the Sasanian front after the capture of Valerian, a man called Odinatus, based in Syria, would take control of the army from the central city of Palmyra and he would fight back against the Sasanians, taking back control of the cities of Cari and Nisibis and heading down the Euphrates towards the key city of Ctesiphon, which had often been a central focus of the imperial conflicts of Rome and Persia. When he reached Ctesiphon, Odinatus declared himself the King of Kings to put himself on the same level as Shapur the Great of the Sasanian Empire. We're not exactly sure how Odinatus was killed in 267 and by whom, but it was the actions of his wife that were the most interesting in the aftermath. Possibly inspired by the actions of Posthumus in Gaul, she declared her infant son as the new emperor of a breakaway Palmyrene empire and she would rule as regent. And so she is known to history as Queen Zenobia of the Palmyrene empire in Syria. So the Roman empire was now falling apart and had now become three independent political entities. However, if we question the stability of the Roman Empire at this stage, then we can also question the stability of the Gallic and Palmyrene empires too. The reality was that these two breakaway empires were only as good as the individuals who represented them. The Gallic Empire was strong under the leadership of Posthumus, and the Palmyrene Empire was strong under the leadership of Queen Zenobia. Posthumus was murdered by members of his own army in 269 in typical Roman fashion. Soon after his death, the provinces of Hispania seceded from the Gallic Empire and rejoined the Roman Empire, before the entire Gallic Kingdom was consumed by the Roman Empire once again in 274 for Emperor Aurelian, following the Battle of Chalon, fought in the modern Grand Est region of France. The Palmyrene Empire had been disestablished the year before, after some successful years of expanding their territory, including the wealthy lands of Egypt. Aurelian reconquered these lands and took Queen Zenobia to Rome, where she disappeared into obscurity.
Reform. Aurelian didn't last much longer himself, murdered by his own men while planning an invasion of the Sasanian Empire following the death of King Shapur the Great. Aurelian might have been one of the best things to happen to Rome during the 3rd century due to his strong military leadership, but still he fell foul of a dysfunctional military system which would decide their own fortunes based on the whim and feelings and alliances that were relevant on any particular day. So now even if a good emperor come along, it would just be the norm to murder him whenever it suited his legionaries to do so, although it was usually coerced by someone who would make them promises of a better life. The constant nagging threat to the Romans' northern frontier was from the Germanic tribes, Roman emperor who is documented in a favourable light is Probus, who came to power in 276 and was able to repel the invasions of the German tribes across the Rhine and the Danube rivers, before rebuilding fortifications originally erected by Hadrian in the previous century. Despite being a very successful Roman military leader, he was also a very careful administrator of the empire, showing diplomatic respect to the Roman Senate. Probus's next project was to campaign on the eastern frontier against the Sasanians, but once again he was murdered by his own troops. This really was a futile situation. Something really needed to be radically changed to prevent the Roman Empire from collapsing under the weight of its own dysfunctionalities. So it would fall onto the shoulders of a man called Diocles, who originated from the Roman province of Dalmatia. This province is centred roughly around the modern countries of Croatia and Bosnia and Herzegovina. We don't know so much about Diocles's earliest years as he was from a humble background, but rose to significance through his military service, which gained him respect from those who served under him, which is why he was selected to be a potential emperor. In a typical succession crisis, Diocles would lead an army of loyal supporters to do battle with the Roman Emperor Carinus at the Battle of the Margus in 285. It is possible that members of Carinus's army deserted him as he was defeated and killed during this battle. The remainder of his army swore loyalty to Diocles and Diocles was proclaimed as the sole emperor of Rome, ruling as Gaius Aurelius Valerius Diocletianus. We will call him Diocletian. Diocletian decided to make some very radical reforms to the political scene of the entire Roman Empire. This is something that he deemed necessary because the leadership of a large empire with the current condition was simply not working, and it was not working regardless of the abilities of whoever was the emperor. Diocletian's first step was to divide the rule of the empire into two halves. He would then take his junior emperor, a man called Maximian, and make him the emperor of the Western Roman Empire. Diocletian would remain as the emperor of the Eastern Roman Empire. 
However, we should be careful to state that the two entities coexisted as a united Roman Empire, but there would now be two emperors and two administrative headquarters. Maximian would continue to regard Diocletian as his political superior. Although this meant that more attention could be given to aspects within the empire, Diocletian would still recognise the requirement for a practical solution to succession to the role of emperor. So each emperor would have a junior emperor, and each junior emperor would oversee their own geographical portion of the empire. As ever, in Rome, each emperor was called the Augustus, and each junior emperor was called the Caesar. With this new structure, should an Augustus die, then he would be succeeded by the appropriate Caesar. There were no guarantees that this would work, but let's face it, nothing else was working. Diocletian wanted to promote a much more absolute rule of emperors, including weakening the influence of the Roman Senate. Augustus, the very first emperor of Rome, ruled as a type of prime minister, stylized as a princeps or a first among equals. Diocletian wanted the emperor to be perceived much more like a political dictator who was the man in charge. It is this transition which has characterised the historical distinction between the early Roman Empire and the late Roman Empire, which have been dubbed the Roman Principate and the Roman Dominate, respectively. The system of having four emperors, an Augustus and a Caesar in the east, and an Augustus and a Caesar in the west, is called the Tetrarchy. The introduction of Caesars enabled Maximian to appoint Constantius Chlorus to deal with an ongoing uprising by a Roman military commander called Carousius, who had served under Maximian previously. Carousius would take control of Britannia and declare himself as its emperor. Maximian and Constantius struggled to bring him to heel, and it would take a long time before Constantius would finally be able to get the better of Carousius. One of Carousius's administrative officers assassinated him and took control of Britannia and the lands of northern Gaul occupied by a Germanic tribe called the Franks, his name being Electus. Constantius's Praetorian prefect, Julius Asclepiodotus, would be the one to travel across the English Channel and defeat the forces of Electus, enabling Constantius to occupy Londinium, the modern English city of London, now that Alectus was dead. Diocletian would promote the fact that he and his fellow emperors had been chosen by the gods, bringing a divine aspect to his appointment, and he would also make the army legions smaller than they had been which was certainly much more effective when combating the barbarian tactics of the Germanic tribes and possibly diminishing the chances of there being a mass uprising. Diocletian would portray himself as above the ordinary Roman citizen with a great degree of royal ceremony, giving off the aura of him being somewhat sacred and untouchable. Diocletian would ensure that there was much more 
in the way of bureaucratic duties for senior statesmen such as senators and the Praetorian Guard, while the emperor himself would make all of the major decisions. So the senior statesmen would now have defined duties that would distract them from independent thought and potentially make them feel that their role was more of a responsibility than a privilege. Financial reforms meant more uniformity in taxation, the fairer and wider distribution of coinage throughout the empire and harsher penalties for those involved in illegal trade such as the black market. Diocletian would also attempt to regulate pricing and wages although this proved to be very difficult to police. All in all, the reforms of Diocletian were good reforms which modernised and civilised the Roman Empire and brought its outdated 1st century politics up to the 3rd century. One aspect of the Roman Empire that was becoming a bigger problem was growth of the Christian religion which had emerged as an offshoot of the Jewish religion, possibly recognised during the first century in the city of Antioch, which is in the modern south of the country of Turkey, near its border with Syria and close to the Levantine coast. Christianity and Judaism would become distinct and eventually stand in political opposition to each other, but this wasn't something particularly unusual for two closely related religious belief systems, and this case only seems more significant because of how important these two religions have become in the modern world. It might just be the case that persecution of the Christians in the early Roman Empire was something that only happened as a localised thing, and because Christianity wasn't established like Judaism was, it was just seen as a minor refusal to observe the traditional Roman pantheon, and was frowned upon to differing degrees depending on how tolerant or intolerant the local Roman governor was. Certainly, Nero decided to persecute Christians in the wake of the Great Fire of Rome in the year 64, but we cannot trust that Nero was behaving rationally, with some believing that this was to cover for his own involvement in starting the fire. Christian worship started to become more relevant during the 3rd century, with some of the more important officials within the empire choosing to observe it. Rome as an empire decided to make an official edict forbidding more Christian conversions and this would instigate a precedent for Christian persecution by Romans, even believing that those who were turning their back on the Roman pantheon were the ones responsible for bringing bad fortune to the empire. Diocletian believed that cleaning up the empire included cleaning out the Christians as their place of worship and sacred texts would be destroyed in a bid to make everyone observe the true Roman pantheon of gods. This is known as the Great Persecution. Christian clergy were commanded to make sacrifice to the Roman gods or face arrest and execution. Whatever your feelings about Diocletian, there can be no doubt that his work at the forefront of the Roman Empire was necessary and effective. It ended a period of Roman history when 25 emperors ruled in just a 49 year period. 
reforms were made to a great many aspects of the Roman Empire to turn it into a modern empire. With the celebration of all things democratic in the classical world of Greece and Rome, things had now decidedly turned more traditionally autocratic, which was typical of most ancient and classical world nation-states. However, the most intriguing reform of Diocletian's reign was the great persecution of the Christians, because it would be Christianity that would become a major part of the fabric of the Roman Empire during the following period in its history. And that is a story for next time. Thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast. We're really motoring through the episodes now and getting through the Roman Empire. We've sort of left the the traditional classical uh, Roman world behind and we're now venturing into late antiquity. And uh, we're nearing the, the times of reform of the traditional Roman Empire into uh, a new kind of empire and then... The, the, obviously an empire of that size with the amount of different um, ethnic groups emerging and developing around the peripheries of the Roman Empire it can only be a matter of time before things start escalating again and really coming to a head how much longer can the Roman Empire survive in the first millennium world now, we always say to you that if you enjoy listening to the History of the World podcast and you can't get enough of it and you want more and more, um, by all means, go to the website, the historyoftheworld.com website. We're always posting stuff on there and a lot of it is relevant to the stories that we've told over the, the previous two and a half years that the podcast has been running for. But then also, if you want to make any kind of uh, contribution to the podcast, you can. You can sign up and make a monthly donation and uh, you're entitled to certain rewards. And one of them was from last week's episode. We invited one of our new patrons to ask a question and she asked a question about the Amazons. And we spoke about the Amazons uh, for uh, a number of minutes at the end of the episode and hopefully learn a little bit more about some of the um, some of the quirks and, and intricacies of of Greek history on that occasion so um, very interesting indeed and um, also if you want to be able to ask a question all you need to do is just sign up and make monthly donation to the History of the World podcast you can do that for as little as one dollar a month and while you're on the History of the World podcast.com website just click on the patreon link when you sign up to make a monthly donation you become a history of the world podcast illuminati member so that's your distinction for the rest of your life you can be a history of the world podcast illuminati member as has uh, david this week so, new History of the World podcast, Illuminati member, David. Thank you so much, David. Welcome along. Now, in these troubled times, it's not always possible to make a financial contribution. Um, many of us are struggling through this year, uh, trying to make ends meet, obviously, as, as um, 
things are, are going from bad to worse, so it seems, and that hopefully next year things will start brightening up. But if you enjoy the podcast and you wish that you could do something for the podcast, then you still can. You don't have to contribute money. We don't need your money. You can enjoy the podcast for free and support it by just simply rating and reviewing the podcast wherever you listen to us. Uh, we're really grateful for ratings and reviews and, and we always endeavour to read them out as well so that everyone can enjoy it and that you get uh, your 30 seconds of fame. Now, sometimes I have to look in some obscure places for uh, some of the reviews and I found one on Podcast Republic uh, from Adam who gave the podcast five stars and put great podcasts that takes a layman chronologically through world history tells and explains a story how the story was discovered how sure are we of all of it and does it in a clear and entertaining way that's a very nice review thank you so much um well i think we're going to sign off for this week thank you so much for enjoying uh, the latest episode and uh, next week we're going to be exploring the change the big change in the roman empire uh, where religion is the big topic. We're going to be talking about the Emperor Constantine. And uh, that's all for next week. So it's going to be an important one next week, not to be missed. And uh, until then, thank you for listening. Uh, enjoy your week and don't forget to be good. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, History of the World Podcast. You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us.